Welcome back to another Meet Kevin Report. Today is episode number 15 already. Welcome back. Uh, first, we're going to start by talking about what's going on with the latest on Elon. We'll do a little bit on subject to real estate. We'll talk about what's going on in the market, of course. Some of the earnings that I actually missed this morning as well, and what that potentially means for the market. Uh, and we'll see what else we've got in store for you. So let's get started. First, uh, Elon Musk. So we've got the Super Bowl coming up, uh, and uh, Elon Musk apparently, uh, according to the Wall Street Journal, has asked uh, Twitter staff to basically do whatever they can to sell uh, advertising for the Super Bowl. In the past, the Super Bowl has been a really big weekend, that Friday, Saturday, Sunday, uh, for the uh, for the advertisers on, on Twitter. Uh, and so apparently in an email, the company is offering basically $250,000 in free ad space to advertisers that spend at least $250,000 on the platform. So it's sort of like a buy one, get one. And it's interesting because Obviously, we know after Elon took over, there were a lot of brands that were very uncertain about the future of Twitter, and there's been a lot of a pullback from advertising on Twitter because of that. Some of that might have been because of macro, some of that may have been because of uh, the, the uncertainty involved in uh, potentially advertising on Musk's platform that, at the time, everyone in the mainstream media was suggesting was going to implode. Uh, of course, since then, Elon Musk has laid off uh, somewhere around over 60% of the company. 2,500 approximately individuals left at the company, down from about 7,500. So that's actually closer to 67% of people gone over at Twitter. Uh, now, uh, Elon has uh, recently, apparently, sent out an email. Uh, this was according to uh, the Informer. They released a report saying Elon sent an email out, kind of giving you a little bit of insight into his business practices asking all employees to list what they had accomplished in January and what other additional issues that they're working on trying to solve or recommendations they have for the company going forward. I think it's kind of interesting. It's kind of like a, so what did you get done in the last month that you were paid? <laughs> kind of an interesting argument. If you're working at Twitter and you're watching this, you probably want to start documenting all the good stuff you're doing. <laughs> uh, anyway, going back to uh, the Wall Street Journal over here. Wall Street Journal uh, is suggesting here that uh, they're ramping up their Super Bowl pitches to advertisers, offering a last-minute deal on one of the most high-profile big-game ad packages, according to an email viewed by the Wall Street Journal. It's also telling advertisers that the number of conversations on the platform about the Super Bowl uh, and uh, the National Football League is up significantly from a year earlier. Now, personally, I always somewhat... Uh, question <laughs> when I hear stuff like that because I'm like by what measures but hey you know what whatever they got to do to encourage people to come back and, and support Twitter probably not a bad thing especially since at one point there were suggestions that up to 70% of advertisers had left Twitter and by another measure up to 90% of a reduction was noticed in ad traffic or not sure I shouldn't say ad traffic regular traffic to the advertising domain that Twitter uses, implying that potentially 90% fewer ads were actually being signed up for in November and December. Who knows? But uh, Elon Musk has also given us a little bit more insight, which actually comes as kind of supportive, especially to uh, Tesla stock, since basically Elon Musk used Tesla stock as his piggy bank to finance the purchase of Twitter. But you do have some good news uh, today for Twitter, it's and it's uh, or for Tesla, and it's actually twofold. It's obviously the win by Elon Musk and Tesla and the 420 funding secured lawsuit, where now they have removed potentially up to six to $12 billion 
of liability. That would have been a big issue uh, if Elon or Tesla had to contribute to this. Obviously, uh, the expectation was that that would have gotten negotiated down, but that overhang is now gone. But the Twitter overhang of Elon Musk having to sell Tesla shares to be able to support this company he was saying was trending towards bankruptcy may now starting to be getting removed. And that's because Elon Musk here says in a reply to the Wall Street Journal, uh, and this is uh, the Wall Street Journal trial uh, a piece here where the Wall Street Journal tweeted uh, out the, the win. Elon Musk replies, the last three months were extremely tough as he had to save Twitter from bankruptcy while also fulfilling his essential roles at Tesla and SpaceX. He wouldn't wish that pain on anyone, he says. He goes on to say that Twitter still has challenges, but it's now trending to break even if we keep at it. Public support is much appreciated. So in other words, not yet saved, not yet clearly in the black, but things are trending towards a better direction than they previously were. He further clarified this by saying, thank you for supporting Twitter. And uh, we've got uh, a response here. Somebody asks, was this worse? Then 2008 or production hell. 2008 was the beginning of the, uh, uh, essentially the, the launch of manufacturing for Teslas via uh, the Roadster, uh, while at the same time being stuck in the uh, in, in essentially the recession. So funding becomes extremely challenging. 2018 represented the uh, production hell of ramping the Model 3 while at the same time, Elon Musk was dealing with SEC inquiries over his funding secured uh, tweets. So uh, some responses here from Elon giving a little bit more clarity. But uh, so far, this sounds very good. And keep in mind, Elon Musk did sell about $24 billion of Tesla stock in 2022. That $24 billion of, of sales pressure offset that's sales pressure, right? We already know this. Hopefully this is redundant to you, but for those of you who don't know this, I want to reiterate. Elon's $24 billion in 2022 sales offset $15 billion of retail HODL buying. So net retail buying was 15 billion. His sales were 24 billion. So no duh, the stock moved into a downtrend, uh, which was then easily shortable. Now, of course, some people are like, but Kevin, the volume's higher. That's not how HODLer, someone who was a HODLer, now selling works, <laughs> okay? It has nothing to do with the volume. The volume is sort of like the waves at the top of the ocean. Uh, a hodler coming out and selling is like draining the stock from the bottom. It's very different from just day volume. But anyway, a little bit more insight here. Uh, we have uh, Twitter talking about potentially charging up to $1,000 a month for verification for businesses. Uh, this is because now Elon Musk is... Uh, allowing companies to get a, this sort of gold checkmark like the Wall Street Journal has right here. This gold checkmark is uh, very different from uh, sort of the regular blue checkmark, which you could either buy or you get because you're maybe notable or not. So uh, it used to be that if you, there we go. Uh, verified account, this is a legacy verified account. It may or may not be notable is sort of the checkmark, the old school checkmark. Uh, of course, you can now pay for a checkmark, which just says you have a checkmark if you're, you know, a Twitter Blue subscriber. But the other thing that's interesting is now, uh, let me see if Martin has it. I believe he does. Uh, let's see here. Nope, can't seem to get him very quickly here. But anyway, basically, what they've done on Twitter now is they've allowed companies to create this uh, orange 
checkmark for businesses. And then you could get a sort of a little like T if you work for Tesla next to it. And so you kind of get double verified. So you could get a verification and you could get a business badge as well. And the neat thing about the business badge is you can click on the business badge and it actually links back to that corporate verify, uh, the, the corporate Twitter page. So it's kind of a way that individuals can now show, yes, I do actually work for what company I say I work for. So maybe you can actually get a little bit more transparency rather than just somebody's bio being updated saying that they work for a certain company. And the idea there is in part to A, provide more transparency, which we know Elon's a, a fan of, at least that's, that's what he tells us. Uh, but it's also in some regards trying to prevent what people like George Santos are able to pull off where they can blatantly lie through their teeth about their resume, like going to a university that they never actually enrolled at or working for Credit Suisse or Citibank, which they never actually worked at yet somehow still get elected to Congress. So to some degree, actually being able to verify that somebody actually works for the business they say they work for, as well as being potentially a verified individual, are uh, some of the strategies Twitter is working on to not only provide more transparency, but also increase revenue. A business might have the interest in having this additional verification, maybe because as they're advertising, they uh, they want to seem more credible, which I would imagine if you spend enough money on advertising, they probably throw in the orange check marks as well as the individual check marks that you get for people who work uh, at the business. But it's kind of neat. Uh, it's uh, these are these are pretty neat and innovative things that we, we haven't actually seen Twitter change that much. Uh, un until Elon came around, and now we have view counts, uh, at least some potential reduction in spam, although there's still plenty of spam. Obviously, the blue check mark changed, the orange check mark changed, the employee verification changes. So there are changes happening. A uh, company is somehow operating with 67% less staff, and so far, Twitter hasn't gone down. So good job, Elon. Mainstream media must be a little upset about that because they were pretty convinced this was going to implode. But anyway. Several brands are thinking about returning to the platform thanks in part to the Super Bowl and cheaper ad rates as well as the release of a new tool. Look at that. Already getting new advertising tools. It's pretty smart. Release of a new tool that allows advertisers to create a list of up to 1,000 keywords and avoid having their ads appear above or below tweets containing those uh, words. Uh, so in, in other words, you can now create negative keywords, which is something that Google Advertising's platform has let you do for quite a while, but apparently Twitter's has not. <laughs> so thanks for catching uh, Twitter up, Elon. This is good. <laughs> anyway, beverage company and a financial services firm interviewed by the Wall Street Journal recently began advertising again. Twitter is also offering a three-day Super Bowl weekend package for $250,000, which uh, apparently is considered a fire sale. Wow, that is very expensive. Uh, and then apparently in January, the company offered free ad space on promoted tweet campaigns to get people to come back. Apparently on Super Bowl weekend, which is the, uh, it's actually not the uh, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. I said that wrong. Super Bowl weekend apparently is actually for advertising purposes deemed to be Saturday, Sunday, Monday, which makes sense because you're flanking the Super Bowl on the left and right since that's on Sunday. Uh, and so you, you do sort of the highlight advertising on Monday and you do the prep advertising on Saturday and then, of course, big game day advertising on Sunday. But anyway, many advertisers, including Pfizer, United Airlines, General Motors, have paused spending on Twitter since Elon Musk took over in October. I can't help but wonder, like, how wonderful it just at least seems that Pfizer stopped advertising and uh, on Twitter and presumably Pfizer still advertises on things like YouTube and other platforms. 
And when Project Veritas does a video, critically uh, or potentially even going as far as exposing Pfizer on certain topics, uh, Pfizer, those videos from Project Veritas get removed from places like YouTube, uh, but they get to stay on places like Twitter. And now Pfizer is not advertising <laughs> on Twitter. This is an interesting link. It's probably causation without correlation, but, but you know, wouldn't surprise me if there's at least some link like that still going on, especially since, uh, uh, you know, companies, uh, companies are seeing their ad revenue decline. Even uh, Google, in fact, if we jump over that, uh, that for a moment, Google's uh, YouTube declined now for two quarters in a row, which is a little bit shocking that uh, YouTube ads are declining. This was the last or the second to last report ending September. We saw YouTube was down 1.85% from a year ago. And that same thing was seen in the last earnings report from Google, which I do not have handy at the moment, but uh, we saw the same kind of decline at Google for Google Ads. So it makes you wonder if, oh, here we go, if at all Twitter is experiencing any of the same difficulties that uh, that the other advertisers are, probably even more so, then yeah, you know, you're, you're seeing some year over year declines. Look at this, Google Ads actually down now 7.8%. So you've seen an acceleration from, first of all, strong growth to then negative growth, and now a lot of negative growth. So things got even worse in the quarter ending uh, in December for uh, for advertisers here. Kind of a red flag for advertisers, by the way. Uh, American Express told us the same thing. American Express in their earnings call uh, warned that uh, advertising spending was declining at uh, small businesses. Now, what I think is so interesting about you get, uh, yeah, here we go. Uh, the commercial services and spending by U.S. small and medium-sized enterprise customers represents the majority of commercial services. However, that segment was the slowest growing customer segment. And small business enterprises have recently started to slow down spending in certain categories like digital advertising. And I find it very interesting that they talk about this sort of recent uh, change of a slowdown in digital advertising, somewhat implying that that Q4 was really a, a little bit of a larger headwind for a lot of advertising companies. Probably, frankly, uh, why you had Elon in November and December essentially complaining, hey, you know, we are um, trending towards BK over here. Uh, fortunately, though, it seems like things are getting better. So uh, over here, it says Twitter has been telling some brands that advertisers are returning to the platform. For those that paused post-acquisition, we have seen 30% plus return. Uh, that's great. Uh, more than 70 of Twitter's top 100 ad spenders before Musk took over were apparently not advertising on the platform, according to Sensor Tower as of uh, January 29th. So that's still potentially 70% of the big boys not being there, comparing to the 90% uh, uh, potential reduction in advertising in the fourth quarter, uh, at, at least at one point. Uh, anyway, they, they give some examples here of uh, 30 seconds of ad time can cost somewhere around $7 million for an actual Super Bowl TV ad and uh, are making this comparison to companies using Twitter. But uh, look, the good news is clear that even through the advertising challenges that the entire advertising space is seeing, uh, whether it's uh, TV or potentially connected TV, we'll see what happens when we get uh, trade desk numbers, uh, advertising challenges at Netflix and low take rates on those ads. At the same time, as all of this sort of pain is happening in the ad space, it actually looks like you've got Elon Musk getting the company to at least trend towards profitability. Probably not yet profitable, but trend towards profitability. And remember, he suggested 
and uh, some like to try to say that this is his promise. But he says that he does not need to sell any Tesla stock in 2023. Now, uh, that is what he says. What he does could be different. I, my suspicion is if he would have lost the lawsuit, he would have been right back to unfortunately having sold. So fortunately, that lawsuit overhang is gone. Uh, and uh, he says he might not even have to sell any stock in 2024. Maybe he doesn't have to sell until 2025, though that uh, that is uh, less of a guarantee as more time goes on. So we'll see. But paying attention to Twitter as a Tesla investor is a surprisingly important endeavor. <laughs> so uh, something to pay attention to. All right, let's listen in to Bloomberg for a moment, see what they are talking about. 2023 in really thinking about what 24 looks like. Yeah, absolutely. And and just a little bit more proximate, looking at 2023, we're still looking at a recession happening sometime this year, but a shallow one where essentially the Fed is not successful in its mission in bringing inflation down to a 2 to right. 3% target, but rate cuts nonetheless eventually hit later this year, or more likely early next year. But once you start seeing the Fed cutting rates, let's say early next year, when inflation is bottoming, not at a 2% or 1.5%, but a 3 to 3.5%, you're talking about yields off to the races again, second half of next year. So we're already looking out towards next year. And what and beyond this, what we're saying is a double dip recession is most likely what we're going to see over mm -hmm. the next few years, because there's going to wow. have to be serious damage done to the labor market to get inflation down this cycle. Well, and I just don't think the Double Fed dip like 80-81? Exactly. exactly. I've never heard that. That's yeah. original. That's like the, the post-crisis conversation, Tom, yeah. 10 years ago. Before we get to the second recession, can we yeah, talk? Yeah, you know what? It seems like every single time there's a recession, people start talking about, oh, it's going to be a double dip. It's going to be a double dip. It's literally when I got in the industry uh, in, in real estate in uh, starting in uh, like the late uh, 09, early 2010, when I started getting in, I'm like, all right, so what do we got here in terms of real estate? Oh, terrible market. Oh, dear. Worst crash in a very long time. Okay, interesting. And as soon as we started recovering and the, the real estate market bottomed out at 2011, which is crazy because it, it started falling in 05, didn't bottom out until 11, which is about six years later, uh, you had everyone worried about this shadow inventory of homes that banks were hoarding, that they were gonna release onto the market and crash the market again as soon as prices popped up a little bit. It was just a bear market rally and, and, and uh, the real estate market was gonna double dip crash. Let's listen in more for a moment here just to see what this guy's talking about and we'll do a little bit more analysis on this double dip talk. Higher income cohorts, they're dipping into savings at an astounding rate as well. That's probably more sustainable because they've got a huge cushion. But you put it all together, we're seeing shallow recession because eventually the consumer wobbles over. And once the consumer wobbles, then businesses stop hoarding that labor, like we saw in 2000 with inventories. And then you get that cascade effect. But it should be fairly shallow because we do think by the time this happens, we're talking later this year, and now the Fed's starting to pivot towards cuts for 2024. Well, that's what I was going to say. What the Fed's response to a shallow recession? Is it rate cuts if inflation hasn't really been killed off? I think they're going to, they're going to, you know, hem and haw on this as long as they possibly can, but eventually they will pivot towards rate cuts, but not this year. Now, that's interesting because the bond market as of Friday morning before the, the jobs number was pricing in cuts as soon as we'll say October or November of this year. So the market yeah. this morning is pushing those cuts further out 
it looks like. But the Fed is still going to have to wobble itself towards cuts or pivot towards cuts at some point next year, I believe. Is just a shallow recession and nothing deeper enough to justify credit valuations where they are, given the ongoing rally that people have really uh, played into? Yeah, I would say no, both in the investment grade and high yield space, no. I mean, we got IG spreads, investment grade corporate spreads, somewhere around a 115 to 120. Even in a shallow recession, historically, you're talking about 180 to 200. That's a very shallow recession. And by the way, you can make the same extrapolation to the equity markets, where you're looking at what, how much do earnings contract in a shallow recession. It's you know 15 percent, 20 percent, perhaps. So nothing seems to line up with even with that shallow dip in earnings and, and, and output that we're expecting. So there has to be some risk asset pain. A Chapman Power Volume Two tomorrow. Can we finish there? Do you expect anything different from the Fed chair? No, I think what he's trying to tell us is we don't know where we're, where we're going to terminate the funds rate. It could be five, five and a quarter, five and a half, but we're confident we're going to hold it there for a while. And we don't know what a while is, but it's probably for the, re the remainder of this year. Beyond that, he's data dependent. I hate that phrase. We all hate that phrase. Tom but, loves it. But we, we need to see numbers. We need to see the jobs numbers, and we need to see how quickly inflation is coming down. And all of it comes down to one important data point or, or concept that you're not hearing people talk a lot about today, labor force productivity. If labor force productivity somehow rises and participation rate rises, then it's a game changer. I don't see that happening, though. Participation did on Friday. Is there anything about the data at the moment that makes you think, I don't really know what's happening here. I can't draw conclusions about the post-pandemic realities of this labor market. Well, we, that, that's a head-scratcher. And what we can broadly say is it seems that 18 to 25-year-olds are still, to some extent, boycotting this market, this labor market. Mm. We don't know why they're doing that. We can suspect. We can give anecdotal reasons. But <laughs> Tom's going to give you one right now. And, and we, <laughs> we all have, and we can have our cynical reasons why. But for whatever reason, what? they are boycotting this market. And when they do right. join the market, the labor market, they're not putting their best efforts forward. So labor force productivity is negative. One of the great things of Strategus is the inbred optimism of the shop when Jason Trenet started it. Don't tell me Jason Trenet's 100% in cash. What's the equity belief at your shop? No, so we're, we're looking at, again, consistent with a shallow recession, a modest earnings contraction, and that means that, say, the S&P, let's put a ballpark here, let's do $200 per share for earnings for this year, yeah. and a 17 to, you know, 17 and a half multiple, that gets you, we'll say, 3500 and if the Fed, you know, pauses and pivots sooner than expected. Maybe you get back down to 3,600, but we're still bearish at these levels uh, on equities. We just don't see I the I just love to hear bond guys talk equity. It's I just great. enjoyed that assessment. <laughs> I love to hear bond guys talk equity. So let's, uh, let's, let's consider that for a moment. So the individual's not wrong in that the bond market is pricing in rate cuts probably as soon as even September. And we're pricing in over 1% of rate cuts in 2023. Now, Jerome Powell has been telling us, hey, we don't have any plans for cuts in 2023, but let's be clear, in his last FOMC press conference, he was pretty dang blunt, suggesting that, look, we're going to look at the data, and if inflation comes in hot, then maybe we have to go higher. And if inflation comes in lower, and he purposely implied this because he didn't want to say the word cuts, then obviously they would cut rates and respond accordingly. Now, I think there's going to obviously be volatility over the next not only year, but uh, certainly the next weeks and months here. Uh, as we try to get as much data as we can, I think this sort of Nike swoosh that we're going through is going to be pretty spiky up and down. But this idea of a double dip recession is really interesting. Really, it's a Michael Burian argument. 
It's this idea that, hey, you know what? We could end up seeing a soft recession here in 2023. Then all of a sudden the Fed cuts, but oh no, those cuts lead inflation to actually pop up again. Now people can't go and rely on their savings because their savings are gone. Now people can't rely on the ability to go borrow and get another personal loan from SoFi or max out their credit cards because they've already done that. And now if you get into a situation where inflation starts popping off again while the Fed's cutting, now the Fed has to raise rates again at the same time as people don't actually have a way to spend through the recession anymore. So now what happens? People stop spending. And then that's where employers actually start saying, okay, this isn't a hunker down style recession. This is now a real recession where we actually have to make meaningful cuts to our businesses. Now we lay people off, which kills spending even more, and you get a deeper, ugly, dark, double recession. It's possible what the individual is saying and the warning from Michael Burry is absolutely possible, especially when you combine with that the U.S.-China geopolitical tensions, the fear that, yes, uh, combat with China could actually be something that occurs in the future. Obviously, we shot down their their darn spy drone, uh, spy balloon uh, over the weekend. But uh, look, it's probably going to be months before we're actually able to conduct sort of a, dare you say, uh, an autopsy on this balloon to figure out exactly what kind of technology they had, what kind of scanners and cameras and what kind of data they actually had and were collecting, as well as what kind of data not only they were collecting, but were able to beam back to China before uh, this, uh, this spy balloon was shot down, presumably all of the data that was uh, that was on it was able already to be sent back to China. But look, China does this sort of stuff, right? Like 15 years ago, they stole designs for our F-35 fighter jet. That's a Lockheed Martin F-35 Gen 5 plane. I mean, this is, this is really important. And so what they end up doing, they ended up making a pretty similar plane. Now, most of their jets are still like Gen 4 or even older, like the 90s Gen 3 kind of stuff. But I mean, they've done this before. Chinese hackers have stolen security clearance files from 22 million Americans in 2025. They've stolen medical files from Anthem. They've stolen travel records from Marriott. The difference with this balloon, because they always steal our stuff or try to steal our stuff, is it was sort of like theft right in our face. And that's pretty ugly, right? So, so there's certainly the geopolitical risk here. There, You've got Ukraine and Russia risks. You've got Iran and uh, Russia risks. This idea that now Iran is partnering with Russia to manufacture potentially 6,000 kamikaze drones by building a factory in Russia. So that way they can be sent straight from Russia to the front lines. You've got the treasury yields market that's clearly at least showing some short-term uh, nervousness. We had recently fallen to a low of about 3.35 on the 10-year. Right now we're sitting over 3.6 again, which just drives the real estate market down further. So you do have a lot of reasons to be nervous. BTC back under 23,000, which is sort of like a, I always like to consider it a, your your risk gauge. And, uh, you know, we, we got rejected at 24 and, and now all of a sudden the stock market's a little bit more tentative. On top of that, you've got the earthquakes that are going on in Turkey, which aren't necessarily a, a lagging risk uh, right now to the stock market, but they are they are something that, uh, guess what? Uh, now Turkey's having to shut down certain uh, oil facilities uh, in the Turkish region because of a 7.8 magnitude earthquake that hit, followed by a 7.5 aftershock, potentially 1,300 dead in Syria and Turkey. And uh, now you got oil futures rising on, on that thought. And you're back to almost 81 bucks for Brent, uh, which is probably your biggest inflationary impulse. So, 
you have a lot, a lot of uncertainties. And at the same time as you have a lot of uncertainties, you have mixed data coming in as well, right? The jolts data came in high, which Jerome Powell sort of brushed off. The employment cost index came in at 1%, but still that's 4.4% annualized. For wage gains, that's still too high, right? It's nowhere near 2%. Uh, factory orders in Germany coming in stronger than expected. We retail sales in America coming in weaker than expected. All across the world, it's sort of like, man, got some good, some bad. A lot of companies talking about inflation risks going down, but what do you have? You have companies like Hershey telling you that they still are experiencing uh, inflationary pressures still today. And what I thought was the most interesting out of the Hershey earnings call, because remember, this is what I do. I, I, I read earnings calls. I, I love reading and sharing the information with you. As you find nuggets like this, uh, Hershey says historically, after they raise prices, you actually don't end up reducing uh, prices. That's just not how market dynamics in the candy market work. So in other words, once you get the inflation, you're stuck with it. Now, the good news is as long as prices stay stable and they don't actually expect to raise prices, which they don't, uh, you can actually bring inflation technically back to zero. It's just now everything's been reset to a higher level. But still, all of these things create substantial uncertainties. And so, yeah, this is where people say, look, the first recession needs to be aligned with, if we have a recession, needs to be aligned with, well, inflation going away. Because if inflation doesn't convincingly go away and the Fed has to hawk through a recession, then that's where the real pain could come. And as Burry and this bond dude suggest, you could end up being in a double dip recession. Now, this chart is really fascinating as one to pay attention to. This is the probability that the next recession in the economic cycle has started. We briefly looked at this just the other day, but it's important to look at because it's very uh, historically accurate. Doesn't mean it will be going forward, but probably one of the most important indicators of a recession or reliable indicators of a recession actually happening uh, are the inverted yield curves. And this one in particular is the Fed's favorite. It's called the three month, 10 year inversion. And so you could see that on the bottom, which is basically this upside down little blue mountain over here. And basically the depth of this inversion is the deepest that we've seen since the 80s. It's pretty dang deep. And in the 80s, we had a pretty darn ugly recession because we ended up having to get Paul Volcker. Now, eventually the depth of the inversion is correlated with the amount that in the future the bond market actually expects the Federal Reserve will cut interest rates. So yes, at some point we're going to get massive interest rate cuts. The question is just, do we end up having a single recession? Do we have no recession? Or do we have a double dip recession? Nobody really knows. In fact, according to this chart, the odds that we're in a recession right now are less than 2%. In fact, it's more likely that the recession is still somewhere around six months out according to the inverted yield curve. That would put us into a recession somewhere around August. And then we'd be within a sort of one standard deviation range of the recession being somewhere between August and December. Now, if by that point, inflation actually is convincingly low, and how can we get convincingly low inflation? And we'll talk about the if. Well, to get convincingly low inflation, you need goods to continue their trend down, which they already are, that's good. Uh, in addition to goods continuing their trend down, what do you need? You need that household inflation to come through. That inflation uh, sort of uh, a metric from uh, owner's equivalent rents. Uh, we have got to see that continued weakness in that housing sector, right? But on top of that, we have to see service uh, wage inflation 
go down. Service wage inflation is going to be like medical care, uh, haircuts, accounting services, basic services that, uh, that, that even car insurance that, that you spend money on just to sort of live, right? And the hope is that by the time we get to the summer, or say June or July, hopefully before we walk into a recession, these numbers are starting to convincingly disinflate. Disinflate just does, uh, disinflate is different from deflation, right? Deflation is falling prices, uh, whereas uh, disinflation is prices that are growing at a slower rate, right? So that's falling versus slower rate of growth. Anyway, as long as we can get this and we can confirm, okay, we have a slower rate of inflation in wages, then the Federal Reserve can actually preemptively try to soften the blow of us walking into a recession, and maybe we completely avoid a recession entirely. However, if we don't get that service side deflation, uh, or disinflation, I should say, then yeah, it's entirely possible that we walk into a recession. Not only do we walk into a recession, but then the Fed cuts, but inflation still stays sticky, and then we end up getting the worse double dip recession on the heels of that thereafter. Now, again, unfortunately, it looks like wage inflation is actually stabilizing. This is important. You look at a company like Starbucks and what are they telling you? Wow, it's a lot easier to hire people, a lot less labor turnover. What does less labor turnover mean? It means less wage inflation. Very, very important. Less wage inflation is exactly what we're looking for here. Now, the fascinating part is that a year ago, companies were telling you exactly the opposite. They were telling you, oh no, but we are having a hard time keeping our employees and we're having to pay more to get more employees right now. The only place you're really seeing that now is in certain sectors of the airline industry, like pilots. It's still very difficult to hire pilots uh, because there's so few of them. You still have a smaller industry now than you did before the pandemic. And that's a problem because you had so many retirements. Uh, but you are still seeing hope and good news that that wage inflation is going to go down. Same thing Starbucks is saying is what Chipotle is saying. And a lot of companies suggesting, hey, look, finally, we're seeing those wage pressures go away. That's great. But right now, it's just hope that it continues to move in that direction. Now, on some good news, we had earnings this morning from Tyson Foods. Tyson Foods, a year ago, was bragging about how much their margins were exploding. They're bragging about how big their PP is. They're bragging about, look at my PP, look at my pricing power. It's so large, it's so huge. That's what they were bragging about last year. And now, what are they bragging about? It's a small PP, basically. Uh, which is, they're, they're probably not trying to brag about it. But basically, chicken prices were so high, it was easy for them to have high margins. But unfortunately, chicken is a commodity. And when you have a commodity, the price of a commodity generally trends down over time, especially chicken, because you get more producers in. And when you get more producers in, what happens? Oh, wow, chicken prices plummet. Now what's happening? Well, the company did grow revenues relative to last year. They grew less than expected, 13.26 billion versus 13.5 expected, above the 12.933 from last year, but their earnings per share missed bigly. They were expecting $1.31 of EPS, markets were, we got 85 cents. And that's because as chicken prices plummeted, the company's costs were still rising. And so all of a sudden you're getting squeezed on both sides. <clears throat> this is an example of where it's easy for every company to have told us they had big PP last year. But the reality now is who is actually able to continue to sell product with decent margins while not 
actually missing estimates as terribly as Tyson Foods did and destroying the margins. So in other words, where can you remain competitive in a recession while still maintaining profitability? Tyson Food, a little bit of an oopsie doopsie today with substantially less profitability than expected. And this is totally the opposite of what we saw last year. So this is great, but, but look, you know, we are still waiting for substantially more certainty on what's going to happen. You've got Morgan Stanley's Mike Wilson going, see, told you, bear market rally, everything's going to go down again. Uh, obviously, futures right now are red, just about one half to one third uh, or two thirds of a percent, depending on which index. You've got Goldman Sachs saying, hey, the January rally is as good as it gets. You've got Dell announcing that they're cutting 5% of jobs, citing the lack of PC demand. You've got Deutsche Bank now looking at strategic job cuts. Uh, you've got uh, portfolio managers talking about this regime shift of potentially higher rates staying for longer. We saw this double dip guy. Uh, and the double dip guy, you know, on one hand, he's kind of like, hey, look, uh, and this, I'm, I'm giving him credence here or, or, you know, credit essentially here. He's talking about how right now people can kind of spend through this recession, right? They can hold out because they could just take on debt or they have the savings. They can spend through the downside. Uh, well, I hate to say it, but when I looked at the uh, earnings call uh, for American Express, they used the phrase that consumers right now, especially American Express users, are spending through this recession. And that's basically reiterating what this double dip individual is suggesting that, hey, look, right now people aren't actually yet treating this like a recession because they're just taking on more debt or loading up credit cards to spend through it. Sort of like the idea that, hey, you know what? We just have to get through the next six months and then we're good uh, and then we'll pay off the debts that we accrue. That's great, and it relies on the hope that this is over after, you know, we, we can prove disinflation. But if we don't, then yeah, double dip becomes possible. So you want to hedge for that possibility. And the best way to generally hedge for that sort of possibility is making sure you're not in, exposed substantially to debts that could get margin called, short amortization periods, and you're not exposed to potential job loss. Now, if we actually look at reports from Goldman Sachs, and uh, Morgan Stanley, we can get a little bit of insight into sort of their thoughts. Uh, we get, first of all, insight into the European Central Bank hoping that inflation is mostly now conquered, or, or at least on the path to being conquered. And they're actually starting to uh, taper how much uh, they are basically quantitatively tightening. So they're reducing their tightening efforts already. Uh, and they're pointing out to a more balanced inflation outlook. That's great. Uh, this is sort of the European outlook from Morgan Stanley, but Morgan Stanley and a lot of investment banks right now are saying that emerging markets and Europe are actually faring a lot better than the United States, that the United States is more at risk of an earnings recession than other countries or emerging markets. If we look at uh, a piece from Goldman Sachs over here, we talk about uh, the, the, uh, this idea here that uh, in the quick disinflation right now is what's being priced into markets. And that actually creates a risk in itself that now all of a sudden everybody is too optimistic that we are pricing in so much disinflation that if that doesn't happen in the face of mixed data and then we start getting realistic data, like maybe potentially uh, you have uh, uh, car pay prices starting to rise again, uh, then, then what you end up having is forces that were disinflationary in the last few months starting to become inflationary again. And if it takes longer for the housing market to bring home prices or rents down, 
yikes, then, uh, then that quick disinflation of the rate cuts markets are pricing in is all for nothing. Now, one of the interesting notes here from Goldman Sachs is that, hey, look, you know, housing starts uh, coming out uh, over the middle of this year will probably help drive inventory up substantially as home builders actually try to finally finalize some of their building. They get through the construction backlogs and you could actually see some downward pressure on real estate in the second half of the year. Uh, and yeah, the market is pricing in that sort of disinflation, but be careful because even though we have signs that, hey, these numbers should come down, if for whatever reason they don't, got a big oopsie doopsie coming your way. So be careful. Uh, and they suggest here that uh, it's probably going to be until the end of the year, according to this particular individual at Goldman Sachs, uh, before the Fed is actually confident that the inflation fight has been won. And so Goldman doesn't actually think you're going to see a 50 basis point rate cut until December, even though we've been hearing about rate cuts coming as soon as September based on what the bond market's expectations are. Goldman here suggesting that we'll probably end up sitting around three to three and a half percent as sort of a neutral rate once we get into the cutting cycle, uh, be it next year. Uh, we'll see. We'll see. But a lot of uncertainty. And is it possible there could be a double dip? Yeah, numbers are still very mixed. And so I think it's important to sort of stay the course on, okay, be conservative, have, have long exposure, but... Don't go YOLO, not just yet. <laughs> uh, anyway, this gives us some insight here into some of the madness and uncertainty that we're going to be dealing with. Uh, I think it's actually great uh, that, uh, that, that we are starting to see a more of a balanced labor force for businesses. Even as the unemployment rate is as low as it is, uh, it seems like at least from the front lines, companies are suggesting, look, no real concerns of a wage price spiral, which reiterates what Jerome Powell had suggested in his FOMC press conference. So I think there are reasons to be optimistic, but there are definitely risks and, and nervous, uh, dry, or nervous catalysts that should make us nervous uh, that we want to pay attention to. Uh, this week, we do get some more earnings as well. Powell talks tomorrow. Biden's got a State of the Union tomorrow as well. That's Tuesday. You've got sentiment data coming out Friday. You've got Waller and Hawker talking Friday. You've also got earnings from companies like KKR, the real estate business, BNP, BP, Nintendo, Pepsi, Semiconductor Manufacturing International, Siemens, SoftBank, Toyota, Uber, Disney, Tyson we just got and talked about, Energizer, Royal Caribbean, Hertz, Fiserv, CVS, Hilton, and Credit Suisse all coming out this week. So we'll get some more data, but we know what to look for. And uh, boy, oh boy, <laughs> there's a lot to look for. All right, so what else do we have for, uh, let's see here. So this, uh, I don't know, double dip, kind of interesting. What else do we have to talk about? Ah, uh, yeah, okay, we got a lot to talk about. The, um, I do want to provide a little bit more color on what's going on with uh, these, uh, these Iranian drones that I talked about. So... Uh, let's see here. Let me just give a little bit more color on that for, for some of you. So it's just worth noting, a quick note because I mentioned it here, that the Iranian drone factory is expected to be built in Russia. Uh, it's a, uh, in cooperation between Iran and uh, Russia. They're trying to build drones that are faster and more powerful so they can go a longer range. And that's because Ukraine started to get pretty decent at, at shooting down these drones. They're pretty loud and noisy when they're on their way. They're kamikaze drones. So far, Ukraine has apparently shot down about 540 of them. And there's talk about maybe 
uh, Iran providing ballistic missiles to Russia, although so far there's no evidence that this has actually occurred. And again, they haven't actually started development yet on their, their kamikaze drone factory, but uh, there are talks to start breaking ground on this factory uh, within the next couple months here. So we'll see. Gives us a little bit more of insight into uh, the drama between uh, Russia, Ukraine, and of course our adversaries. Let's look at a few questions that we have here. So what happened to Bitcoin an hour ago? Massive red than normal. Uh, yeah, I mean, well, I mean, <laughs> you know, pre-market, you tend to have pretty low volumes. And Bitcoin uh, frequently uh, is, uh, is something that's worth noting. Because it trades 24-7, you get less volume per minute, right? Uh, that makes sense. But I don't actually see anything pretty dramatic on the minute chart here in Bitcoin. I mean, you you tend to, in pre-market, get uh, a lot of nervousness often, uh, especially off of some of the news that we've gotten this morning. And the market was actually more red this morning, and it seems like it slightly started trying to recover, uh, although we'll see when the market opens in about an hour. Seems like Walmart and Mickey D are hiring, tech and auto firing. What's the data showing? Are jobs hiring, meeting the living wage, 28 plus an hour? meeting the living age. Well, you know, Walmart uh, just raised their minimum wage to, I believe it was $14 an hour from 12. Uh, and that actually brings the average wage for Walmart up to $17 an hour. Uh, so, you know, you're, you're talking about, uh, well, probably the, the lower of the average wage earners. Average wage in America is somewhere around $32 an hour. So it seems like a lot of hiring is still going on in that retail hospitality space, which is generally lower. Uh, lower income. So let's see here. Service techs in auto industry now find it impossible to hire people. You know, one of the things that I find is that you do have a substantial lack of education for the trades in America. And uh, I think that is quite disgraceful. I think we need a government that provides more education and more opportunities for uh, for people so that they can actually make money coming out of high school. And now Ron DeSantis is suggesting that uh, that, that he's going to uh, do exactly this. Now this is fascinating to me because it's something that I ran for governor on, uh, on the premise of this. And uh, Ron DeSantis is now looking at, uh, at requiring uh, not only financial education courses in high school, but also degrees from colleges that focus on, quote, high-wage jobs, not degrees for a political agenda. Now, I'm not trying to turn this education talk into one of politics, but when I ran for governor in California, my belief was we should have a, a, a new type of school, which I called future schools, which could be sort of a, uh, an ancillary part of regular high schools or whatever, but basically it's designed to give you a trade education in your junior and senior year in high school to where when you actually graduate, you can be an auto mechanic the day you graduate. You could be a computer programmer the day you graduate. You could be a bookkeeper the day you graduate. In other words, you can actually do skills the day you graduate high school. That was a campaign promise that I made. Obviously, I didn't run for governor, or I didn't, I didn't win uh, my, the governorship. I came in second place of the recall candidates, which is great, at almost a million votes, which is awesome and an honor. Thank you to all of those of you who voted for me. <coughs> but look, we've got to, I mean, that's, that's something that we are going to have to deal with over the next generations is this idea that people have to be able to graduate school and actually be able to do something and provide value to society. Unfortunately, we're in a situation right now where you do not have 
a, an education system that enables people to actually get a job when they graduate high school. It has almost become difficult for people to graduate high school and get a job at McDonald's because what you learn in high school is so limited. The basic levels of high school are so embarrassing that some people graduate and they can't even read or spell correctly. It's embarrassing. And so our education system in America has, has really become a, a, a very disgraceful uh, and uh, there's a lot of work to do. And I think there's a lot of benefit that, that could be brought to high schools if there was the proper sort of leadership to drive a change for high schools. Uh, I'm a big fan of more education in high schools that's practical rather than, uh, than, than the, the forced education that's designed to get you to go to college, to get you to feed the sort of four-year money-making machine of college, and then really what you're doing is you're just delaying your entry into the workforce by four years and taking on massive student debt, making it impossible or nearly impossible for you to gain wealth through investing in real estate because now you're buried in debt. And now you're on the flywheel of not being properly educated and having a lot of debt and not able to build wealth. It's almost like the whole system is designed to screw you. It's kind of broken, really broken. And, and at some point, we're going to have to pay the price for that broken system. Now, Ron DeSantis' education uh, attack is uh, also moving into uh, ending uh, woke-style programs, he says. Uh, now I'm just going to report on, on what he's saying. There's not much necessary opinion to, to provide here, but basically he's arguing that uh, it's, it's important to end programs that uh, promote diversity, equity, and inclusion-based programs. Basically, end wokeism is his argument. And uh, wants to start requiring courses in philosophy and history that shaped Western civilization. Kind of interesting. He also uh, wants to empower universities uh, and schools to be able to fire tenured teachers or professors because he believes that will lead to more innovation or at least more fear that if you don't actually change with the times, you're going to get fired. Uh, this has been an argument that's been made. It's an age-old argument that, you know, as soon as teachers become tenured, there's this potential incentive to not try as hard to innovate uh, and, and, and uh, teach well uh, because there's no risk of you getting fired. Uh, who knows? Uh, I'd be curious to see what, what some teachers think in the comments below. But uh, I do think a transition to uh, focusing on high-wage jobs, something you can completely agree with. Absolutely can agree with that. Uh, some of the other things are obviously going to be more of political hot potatoes. But then again, DeSantis from Florida, the governor of Florida, is really expecting to be ramping up uh, this sort of uh, uh, these sort of discussions as he prepares to potentially launch his candidacy to run against Donald Trump for 2024, uh, the 2024 presidential election. So we'll see. We will see. But I think education will be a big part. Do I actually think we're going to get massive changes? I don't know. I hope we do because I don't think it's fair to our children that uh, we have to deal with the, the crappiness of the school system that we have. Uh, in Scandinavian countries, strong apprenticeships and technical knowledge is on trades, even in innovative areas. Uh, yeah, okay, so, so you're, you're leaving a comment here basically saying the Scandinavian countries do this. Yes, uh, even, even Germany as well, as you've mentioned here with the flag. Uh, exactly. So European countries, they do this, and I think it's brilliant. You know, college, just sort of the regular four-year degree isn't for everyone. And there's no shame in going to a... Uh, you know, a trade-based school. You can make a lot of money, even as a, a, a plumber running your own business or an electrician. These are very, very well-paid professions, especially since there's so few people who can do the work now. You make great money uh, 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 working working the trades. Really great money. 
So, uh, my girlfriend is a public school teacher, and I went to New York public schools. Our country has no financial education in public schools. Yeah, I mean, no kidding. No kidding. There's, there's no doubt about that. Financial education is another important thing they've got to work on. Uh, and apparently, now, Anthony Johnston here is saying that Canada does not fail students anymore. You auto-graduate every year, no matter what. I, I mean, that's sad. I mean, that's exactly why people graduate high school, and they, they can't even read a book. Uh, let alone read an instruction manual. I mean, the, the education of, of our, of, of, of really Western schools is a disgrace. And it wouldn't be a surprise that this is actually a place where China could potentially start innovating pretty strongly, which I wouldn't be surprised if they already are, to end up kicking our butt uh, by having a more educated workforce in the future. And uh, it, look, if we want to fight China, <laughs> better prepare at all levels. And working on our education system and improving that would be a great start. All right, let's listen in over here. What we at? What's Rokana got to say on CNBC? Whether you believe it was a uh, escape from a lab or however you want to look at it, I mean, what happened during that? China's behavior was not very. Uh, uh, it, it could have made things a lot worse for the entire uh, world in the way that, that COVID was spread. I mean, do you worry that that they're looking at offensive uses down the road and, and testing something like that? Joe, it would be naive to underestimate them or to uh, think that they just have good intentions. Look at what's happening in the Taiwan Strait. They've crossed the median line there in violation of international law. They've launched missiles over Taiwanese airspace, testing missiles, but they've crossed airspace. So they have taken, under Xi Jinping, aggressive action. And the United States has to be prepared for that uh, with tough uh, action uh, and consequences. Uh, if they act. But we also need to engage, just like President Reagan engaged with the Soviet Union. I mean, we don't oh. want, it would be catastrophic, Joe, for there to be a war between China and the United States, let alone something that escalates into a nuclear conflict. And that's why I think we have to do what we've always done as Americans, be tough, make it clear that there are going to be consequences, but engage in diplomacy. It's always what we did with the Soviets in the Cold War. Right, and then in, in the back of everyone's mind is Taiwan and what this means in relation to the future plans for that uh, island as well. Dangerous, uh, dangerous times in an uncertain future, uh, Congressman. Um, I was out in your neck of the woods. All right, hold on a second here. We got a little bit of uh, breaking news. Let's get to the bottom of what's going on here. Stand by. Go EV, ticker Go EV, and the company Canoe uh, just uh, suffered a 28% decline on the stock charts. And uh, this is in pre-market here. It looks like the company has registered uh, 20 or uh, 52.5 million shares uh, via a direct offering to institutions to help the company stay afloat. This is 52.5 million. Uh, dollars worth of shares actually, but it's pretty dang close because it is, yeah, it's 50 million shares at a buck oh five a share. So again, 50 million shares registered, a buck oh five a share. The stock was trading at 125 as of the closing date on Friday. It's now uh, uh, looking like after this uh, re registration uh, at a discount of about 16%. The stock is now trading down about 28 to 30 percent 
because of the dilution uh, that uh, that these additional 50 million shares bring. Uh, but also at the lower valuation is really a sign of stress for the company, right? So this is no surprise. We're seeing a lot of companies suffer massive stress in the auto space right now. This is probably the absolute worst time that you could have a uh, financial crisis for uh, for the EV makers. They go through a lot of expenses to try to ramp their businesses. We know that Rivian loses $271 of gross profit, so in other words, gross loss of $271 for every $100 of revenue they have. So in other words, they're massively negative on gross profit. When Tesla was manufacturing the same amount of vehicles, about 7,000 vehicles, Tesla actually had a gross profit, not including EV credits, of $20. So in other words, they sell 100 bucks of revenue, Tesla actually made 20 bucks. Rivian makes 100 bucks of revenue, they actually spend 271. That's gross profit. I'm not talking about net. Both of the companies at that stage lost money net. But the point is, the cash burn at a lot of these companies, whether it's Lucid or Rivian or GoEV or, or just or Canoe, are absolutely insane. This there's a reason why I made a video about two months ago talking about the coming bankruptcy of Rivian and Lucid. And basically, I went through their balance sheet and said, look, these companies are going to have to raise a crap load of money to stay alive. And there's a reason why on this channel, without fail and consistently, I have been warning that you want to stay away from profitless companies. I understand that when the ocean rises and the stock market rallies up, all companies are going to do very well. And you're going to see big rallies in companies uh, that, that are money losing companies, like for example, Bill.com, and they'll rally. But then what will happen when they actually have to raise money or their earnings come out? They plummet. Bill.com shot up from about 91 bucks to uh, to about $132. I mean, think about that. 132 divided by 91, that's about a 45% share gain. What happened? They reported earnings, and then all of a sudden the stock fell 25 to 30%, which when you fall by that amount off of a higher number could potentially eradicate that full 45% gain. It's not one-to-one. Do the math and you'll see what I mean. But basically, the stock's basically right back to $91, $92. So you got to be very, very careful of money losing companies, especially companies like Canoe. Look at Canoe's revenue, folks. Look at Canoe's revenue on their own income statement for the three months ended 2022 or 2021. Oh, wait, it's blank. That's because there is no revenue. They have no revenue. They just have R&D expenses and SG&A. It's basically just a business that's burning money at this point. In the three months ended, September 30th, they burned $117 million with no revenue. In the nine months ended, September 30th, they burned $407 million with no revenue. That's on their revenue statement, and there is no revenue. So it should literally just be an expense statement. Usually we call it the income statement, but it should be just the expense statement because there is no income. When you look at actual operating cash expenses, you're at $329 million of operating expenses. This is the cash flow statement. And purchases of plant property and equipment of $88 million, $88.8 million. And this is in the nine months ended September 30th. You're burning $420 million in nine months, which means you're burning about $50 million a month just to survive. So let's write that down for a moment, okay? Cash burn at GoEV, $50 million 
per month. It's a pretty old big cash burn, right? Well, how much cash do they have? Well, that's easy because it's all public. You go over here to the balance sheet. Well, oh dear, $6.8 million in cash. Ooh, restricted cash, $4 million. Ooh, that's $10 million of cash. How much inventory do you have? Oh, 1.2 million, so like none. Got some prepaid expenses, but those don't help you. How about liabilities? How much money and like, how many bills do you have due within the next 12 months? Oh, good Lord, accounts payable of $96 million. Accrued expenses of $74 million. Oh, yikes. You have about $160 million of debts due. 170-ish, closer to $170 million of debts due within the next 12 months. So you have payments due of $170 million due within 12 months. You're burning $50 million a month staying alive. And you just at a basically 16% discount row or, or tried to raise $50 million in panic money. This company is going bankrupt. This is absolutely bad. There is, there is no hope here. And so it's no surprise that the stock is down now 32% in the pre-market. This is a zombie company. They have no hope of revenue. And it's no surprise that the company has plummeted. Now, they had a lot of hope when they were pre-SPAC, right? Pre-merger, there was a lot of hopium for them. A lot of hopium. But boy, oh boy, 2022 was not a year to bet on uh, on some of these companies. There's a reason why I repositioned in January of 2022 and got out of every single money-losing company. I do not hold a single share of a money-losing company right now. At least I don't believe I do. I'm pretty sure I don't. I'm pretty sure I sold everything. I don't know. Maybe there's like one leftover share somewhere. But the point is, you don't want to be in a money-losing company during a recession. And if that's not blatantly obvious... Uh, and, and, you know, why you don't want to hold a money-losing company in going into a recession, hopefully this video makes that more obvious. And so I think there's a really big risk in investing in companies like, for example, Roku that loses money hand over fist. I understand they've gone up a lot recently. Look at this. They traded at a low at the end of the year at 38 bucks. Now they're trading at 61 bucks. It's insane, right? It's intoxicating because the stock is up 60%. That's great. But guess what that does? All it does is prop the stock up so that when they need to raise money to survive, they end up diluting you and you're the bag holder. That's what you gotta be careful of on these suckers. You become the bailout mechanism in a recession. That is the point of the stock market. The point of the stock market is to provide liquidity for these companies. And guess what? In this case, the company didn't even do this, the share sale on the open market because they probably realized they couldn't get it done on the open market. They couldn't dump 50 shares on the open market, 50 million shares. So instead, what they do, they sold it to an institution that was dumb enough to take it at a buck five a share. And now the stock is trading for 86 cents. So the losers who just made that bet thinking they were getting a 16% discount for some reason think it's actually smart to walk into a bankrupt company and bail them out doesn't make any sense. So I, I don't know. I don't know what other kind of handshakes or, or what, what kind of shakes they got, but this sounds like a terrible deal. And uh, this is a very, very big risk when you're looking at investing in a recession. You've got like, even if, even if a company misses revenues and their guidance isn't as good, 
What you want in a recession is a company that's kind of like Apple or Starbucks. Okay, Apple or Starbucks, what are they telling you? They're like, look, yes, growth is slow. Uh, it has slowed. We're trying to recover. We have issues because of supply chains in China and their problems. But guess what? We're going to get through it. Not only are we going to get through it, but guess what? We're going to increase our dividends. We're going to increase our buybacks. And we're going to use this as an opportunity. Whereas you look at a company like Lucid and they're like, yeah, we're going to raise $1.5 billion because we need to be able to survive. Or you look at a company like GoEV and it's like, yeah, we need to panic sell $50 million worth of sale shares because we're burning $50 million a month in cash burn. And we've got $172 million of debts due within the next 12 months. We got a lot of bills sitting on our desks and we've got no money and we have no revenues. So I, 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 I don't know how much more obvious you can make it that in a recession you want to stay away from money losing companies. But I don't know. For some reason, people keep speculating on these because, uh, I, you know, I think they have the greater potential of a greater run up. But boy, you, you better play them as a trade. But I would not want to hold any money losing company right now. That's my shtick on money losing companies. Ah, gosh, it's, I always get so worked up over these, man. Ugh, I get angry. Like, why would you have your money in this? It doesn't make sense. The financials are so terrible. Uh, look, I, 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 I'm a fundamentalist at heart, okay? I do fundamentals. That's what I do, man. I do fundamentals. That's it. I, 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 I like, look, sometimes I'll do trades. You know, I shorted the dollar, I thought, at a great time. Uh, I've got great trade ideas. I don't pull the trigger on all the trade ideas I have. I, I, I plan to more, especially since everybody around me wants, wants me to trade more because I do have a lot of ideas. Uh, yeah, but, but the point is, at heart, I'm fundamental driven. Uh, and that's just because I, you know, when, when I started with, with real estate, it was all about the fundies, folks. It's you do not overpay for a property, ever. That is the rule. You don't overpay for stuff. Fundies, fundies over everything. I don't know. That's my take. <sighs> so worked up. I'm mean, going to have a heart attack on stream. Oh, it's so bad. Now we got to talk about another really stupid thing that you could do. I just ranted about how I'm a fundamental-based person. And I hate overpaying for stuff. Well, now there's this new idea. It's not really a new idea. It's been around for decades. People have been doing this forever. But there's this idea that's gaining trend and traction again right now called creative financing in the real estate space. And a lot of folks are coming to me and they're sending me emails or they're leaving me comments. They're like, Kevin, I just saw this video on creative financing in real estate. I, you know, I want to get into real estate. Let me do creative financing. And I just basically put my head in my face because look, there, let's, let, me, let me explain to you the reality of creative financing, okay? First of all, if you have to get creative with the financing, there's a problem. Somewhere there is a problem. Either you can't qualify or the deal is shit. It's that simple. So let's go through a normal real estate transaction. In a normal real estate transaction, let's say you wanna buy a $400,000 house. Uh, it, you know, it's in a $400,000 neighborhood. And, uh, and maybe you're able to get it for 350 because it's got ugly paint and ugly carpet and it's nasty. And you go to the bank and you're like, hey, I want to put 3.5% down on that. It only has some cosmetic damage. I want to buy that property for 350 The bank's appraiser looks and goes, no problem. We can appraise this all day long because you're getting a wedge deal. You're getting something below market value. Even if you were paying market value, 400 k the bank will finance it. Here's 3.5% down. You don't even have to put a lot of your own money down. 
It's America is fantastic. You get a 30 year fixed grade mortgage with three and a half percent down. Sometimes you do 5% down conventional. You call up your local community development corporations. You're like, you got any down payment assistance? And what do they say? Hell yeah, we do. You make a, a normal amount of money. You don't make too much money. You're not a rich dude. Okay, no problem. We'll help you with your down payment. America is so fantastic with getting people into homes when the homes make sense. So in a normal transaction, you either buy a property slightly below market value or you buy a property at market value and you get an appraisal and you get traditional financing. As soon as people start talking about creative financing, there's usually a problem happening somewhere. Now, there's this idea that people have that, oh, you can get creative financing for everything. Yes, this is true. You can, but it's moronic. You have to be very, very careful because here's the reality of real estate investing. In the world of real estate investing, you get either price or terms. It's that simple, okay? It's never both. You get price or terms, unless you're sitting at the market. So for example, you wanna buy a fixer-upper, you go in and you waive your contingencies because you're like, I want the lower price, but I will give you comfortable terms to make this easy for you. You either pay cash, you remove your contingencies, you give them some holdback money uh, or, or some moving money, whatever, right? You somehow made the process easier for them. That's how you negotiate a good deal, getting something below market value. But if you're someone who's like, well, I can't qualify for traditional financing because I don't even have 5% down, or I don't wanna work with the bank because the interest rates are too high, and all of a sudden you have this, this, this uh, you know, uh, um, person who makes a YouTube video talking about how great creative financing is and how you could basically get a bunch of real estate with no money down sometimes, uh, and, and you could get a cash flowing property with no money down and no bank, and instantly, all of a sudden, every 18-year-old's got a hard-on for real estate because they're like, oh my God, wait a minute, Kevin. Creative financing, that sounds fantastic. Now look, I'm all for people getting in real estate, okay? I want to be very, very clear. I think you can build a lot of wealth with real estate. A lot of money can be made in real estate. But then what happens is you get people with this creative financing vision that come in and they basically say, hey, look, Kevin, look how great things are right now. I could get a cash flowing property, maybe even with a lower interest rate because the seller has a lower rate. Rates are high right now. Kevin, I can get a cash flowing property at today's rents and a lower interest rate because I'm gonna take over the seller's mortgage and why would I not do this? Because maybe I can even do it with no money down. This is so great. What could go wrong, Kevin? You're just, uh, you know, angry because you don't want to do creative financing. You're just bagging on it because you don't understand it. Oh my gosh. So let me explain. First of all, this on screen right here looks and sounds great. Cash flowing property, lower interest rate, no or low money down. You know what? Easy process. You, it only takes a few days. There's a legal way to make this work easily. And you know what? I'll put it in an LLC so I can limit my liability. Those are the theses, right? That's the thesis of creative financing. And so far, that sounds fantastic, right? I mean, again, it's fast. You've got the potential of cash flow. This is very exciting. What's there to hate about creative financing? Well, let me be clear. I, myself, 
am a big fanatic about real estate. I started as a real estate agent, became a real estate broker, became a licensed real estate lender. Myself and my wife, no partners included, went from zero real estate to over $25 million in properties, probably somewhere in that about $13, $14 million of equity. And we've been through the game of real estate. We get it. We started at the bottom. We understand real estate. We understand why people do creative financing. We get it. All of these things that I just listed, they sound fantastic. Again, cash flow, lower rate, no money down, easy process, few days legal, whatever, right? All of this sounds great. So Kevin, if all of this sounds great, what are the risks? Why should somebody potentially be careful about creative financing? Because what did I just tell you? You get terms or you get price. So what does that mean? Well, if you wanna do creative financing, you're getting terms. Guess what that means you're not getting? You're not getting price. You're literally doing the opposite of a wedge deal when you do creative financing, generally. Now, I'm not saying always, because there are times you can get a good deal with creative financing where you're getting both terms and price, but those are lottery tickets. They're a lot more rare. The usual creative financing deal where you take over someone's mortgage or you get a seller carry back or whatever, you don't actually get price, you get terms. Now, people say that's okay because this is how they structure it, okay? Let me, I'm gonna, make an, uh, I'm gonna make an example for you here, okay? The way it's structured is something like this. Hey, look, you've got properties in this $400,000 neighborhood. You've got a lot of properties over here. And what you're gonna do is you're gonna go to a seller of a property, like an expired listing or whatever, basically somebody who couldn't sell their home because it was an overpriced piece of crap. And you're gonna go to them and, and you know what, let's call this not a home, let's call it a duplex to make it sound like, you know, okay, yeah, the investors like it, okay? All right, it's a 400K duplex, okay? 400K neighborhood, I should say. The neighborhood sells duplexes for 400K. But you have a seller who wants $500,000. And you look at this and you go, hey, you know what, seller? I'll give you the 500K. I just want the property because right now it cash flows. And you know what, it cash flows even after I pay my property manager. So why don't you sell me the property at $500,000? I take over the mortgage, I get the 3% mortgage rate, it cash flows. Kevin, what's there not to like? Well, we're gonna ignore about the potential legal risks and there are ways to solve those legal risks, so I'm not gonna go down that road. I'm gonna go down the realistic road of the market crisis that we're in right now. Here's the risk you face. What if, you think you're paying 500K for a 400K property and now the market falls even more. Now the new actual value of the duplex is $350,000. But wait a minute, not only does the potential price of the property go down even more, which it's already bad that you massively overpaid for the property to start with. By the way, the people, people are like, but Kevin, I would never overpay by this. People are so dumb when it comes to real estate. They're so dumb. They'll, they'll literally pay 500K for a 400K home because they're looking at comps from like March of 2022. And they're like, but houses used to sell for close to 500. Uh, yeah, at the peak of the market, dude, it's way less now. People are really bad at comps, okay? Or they do like these bullshit, like uh, uh, cost per square foot adjustments that just rob people who don't know what they're doing in real estate. Anyway, let's say the value of the property goes down. Now all of a sudden the value of the property is 350, but that's not a big deal, right? Because it's cash flowing. Oh, but wait, it's cash flowing based on 2022 rents. So what happens when your tenants leave or they lose their jobs and all of a sudden rents are actually starting to decline by 10 or, 10 or so percent? Well, let's say rents go down 
10%. And now instead of cash flowing 300 bucks, you're negative. And now all of a sudden you're at a negative cash flow because rents declined and the property value is lower. Now you're like, okay, well, maybe I can sell out of the property, right? No, because you have a contract that says you're paying a seller 500 grand on a property that's worth $350,000 and now you're in a negative cash flow situation. Well, what happens if you lose your job and you can't afford that negative cash flow? Well now, or, or for whatever reason, you don't wanna afford that negative cash flow. What if you're like, hey seller, can you take the property back? Guess what the seller has the ability to do to you? If the seller has to take the property back and dump it at 350K, guess what the seller was just? The seller, was damaged. The seller was damaged by $150,000. And guess what they can do now? They can sue you for the difference between what you promised you'd pay them and what they were actually able to get when they had to basically take the property back from you because you couldn't pay the payment anymore. So now I know this is an extreme example, right? You could make, you could, you could like make this less extreme. Let's say the property value didn't fall anymore. It's 450 and you're going to pay the negative cash flow. But what people are doing with these negative or creative financing deals is they're not realizing they're overpaying for the pro product. You can do creative financing on anything in the world, but you're overpaying. It's that simple. And so people who generally get into creative financing, they don't know how to comp properties. They don't know what they're doing with real estate. They don't know how to mitigate their risks because they're willing to overpay. I do not overpay. I don't even like paying market value. I always get under market value deals. That's the way I roll. I don't, I don't do overpay ever in real estate. It's way too risky. Uh, and they don't actually account for the fact that rents can actually go down. And all of a sudden this like cash flow, just overpay for it, that sounds like a great idea, actually is stupid. And now you get, you get screwed, you know? So real estate, uh, you have to be so careful when you get into real estate, when you get sold this bill of goods about creative financing and how you could get into real estate, you, people, most people don't even know what they're signing up for. And then they get into the stuff and they end up getting screwed. Now, how do most people actually make money pitching creative financing on the internet? I'll tell you how, okay? They, they do the following. I'm gonna put the word up on screen. They wholesale. So what you basically do to really make money on creative financing is you, you create a social network. You create some kind of following of, of people who are really interested about creative financing. And then you find overvalued deals that you sell to, that, that you basically shill to clueless real estate investors. Uh, and, uh, and then you take a commission for arranging that deal basically. So like you get a deal under contract, you, you sell it to someone uh, at a 20 grand premium or whatever that you could sell the bill of goods on, on, on this creative financing. And now you're really making most of your money from wholesaling really crappy deals. So I just like to be very, like I, I wanna be very, very clear here. As Picking Up Penny says, Kevin, tell us what you really think. <laughs> I want to be very, very clear. Creative financing usually comes with massive risks. I'm not saying you can't do it. Look, 
If somebody came to me on a wedge deal and is like, Kevin, I'll let you take over the mortgage, I'd be tempted. You have to be careful in a state like California. These are called all-inclusive deeds of trust, and you can get sued the crap out of in California on AITDs. In other states, these are a lot more common. Arizona, a lot easier to do this stuff. The state actually, in some, some cases, encourages it, or, or local areas encourage this. Uh, and some banks like it. You have to be careful. And this idea, uh, car for coin, I love your here all the time, appreciate it, close down the LLC and run. People think they can do that. People think they can do that. I will promise you though, in America, the land of lawsuits, I don't care how many stupid LLCs you got. If you're based in America, you are going to get personally sued to crap if you screw up in real estate. I don't care what kind of LLC you got because you're gonna have to sit I think it's a, what is it, a 3506? I, I can't remember exactly what the section is. Uh, but there's basically a type of legal deposition where you have to prove uh, your income statement, balance sheet, your corporate minutes. You have to prove all of this yourself in corporate depositions. And if there's any way they can pierce that corporate veil, which is very easy to do, especially when people are clueless about the law or LLCs and, and cost segregations and, and preventing commingling. Oh my gosh, LLC ain't gonna protect you from anything. So <laughs> let, let me just make it very, very clear. If you hear creative financing and it sounds too good to be true, it's probably because there's a catch. <laughs> ay, ay, ay. I'm sorry. I, I, some of these things I just get so worked up on. Uh, and, and it's because I, I, I really do want people to, to build wealth and make money in the traditional safer ways. In my opinion, that's you buy a simple house, that's slightly below market value and you build equity and you try to do it again and again and again and again. But the creative financing stuff, my gosh, it's it's driven by people who don't wanna work. That's what it is. You don't wanna get a job. I, and I'm serious. Like you wanna buy real estate, get a damn job. Get a job where you get a W-2 and it becomes really easy for you to qualify for real estate. You can literally go to college for four years, graduate, get a job at, I don't know, Intel, and, uh, and, and uh, the day you start your job, you could qualify for real estate with two years of work experience because as long as you get that job in the similar line of work of what you studied in college, they'll already give you two years of work experience. They make it so easy for you to get really good financing. And you have to think about it. The only reason a seller would let you take their 3% mortgage is because they can't sell it on the open market. That is your clear as day tell you're overpaying when you do subject to financing. Why would a seller give you their 3% mortgage? It's because they're way upside down. That's the only reason. If they weren't upside down, if you weren't overpaying, they could just sell it on the regular market. So you know you're overpaying. Oh God. Oh, I don't know. I, I don't know how much more blunt I could be. I'm gonna stop now before I have a heart attack. <sighs> oh. All right, what do we got over here? That's good because for all last year, he was saying we're getting to 5% and we're sticking through 2023 and then that's where we're going to go. Um, now he's saying, well, let's just see where this, this, how this plays out. And, you know, you've already priced in a May hike from, from Friday's data alone. So to me, that, that just shows the market's going to be at the mercy of the data. And, and, and that's all right, because I'd rather be at the mercy of the data than just the Fed saying, here's what we're going to do no matter what, um, which is kind of yeah. what they were telling us the back half of 2022. Thanks for the question, James. How well understood the... Good point, by the way. That guy's right. I'd rather the Fed react to the data, right? Totally good point. Maybe Chairman Powell doesn't have work to do tomorrow. Lisa and I were talking about that earlier this morning on Bloomberg Surveillance. Yields are up off the back of strong data. Yes. Isn't that what the Fed chair would like to see? Does he need to validate that tomorrow? 
No, you're right. I mean, I'm, as a general rule, pretty crit critical of central banks, but I'd say I think the Fed's since they recognise the kind of error of, of keeping policy way too easy for way too long. I think they've actually done a really good job. Communication has been consistent from speaker to speaker, and they've not been afraid to be forceful when it's necessary. As you get to this stage towards the inflection, it becomes a bit more nuanced. And remember, the Fed has been very clear about the fact that one of the inputs into its decision-making is the accumulated tightening thus far. And yeah, we've buddy. not seen really um, new evidence of that just in the last day or in the last week. Obviously, that's still a an additive process happening all the time. And so we should expect to see that increasingly in the data. I don't think that the data we saw Friday really changes much for the Fed when they look at the March meeting. I don't think they're going back to 50 basis points. I think the bar to that is incredibly high. Um, so it solidifies the idea they hike 25. Is it impactful for May policy setting or June or beyond? Not really, because we're going to get a lot more data between now and then. So the fact that the market has just nudged up the front end makes some sense. I would question whether the curve should steepen on that outcome, because to me, it does raise the, the potential for a soft landing, even though it's not a base case. Um, but, but risk has come down, financial conditions have tightened. To your point, does he really need to pile on at this stage? I would suggest probably not. Well, let's talk about financial conditions. Matt Brill, if you look at high yield spreads, they're 200 basis points tighter <laughs> than the wides of last year. If you look at the equity market, take the Nasdaq, it's 15% higher year today. If you take the dollar, it's about 10% weaker from the peak at the back end of September. Matt, how can the Fed chair say financial conditions haven't moved much since the last Fed meeting? Yeah, they, they absolutely have. And even just last week alone, you saw triple C's really outperforming because everybody thinks if you have a soft land. Hey, uh, Nick T just actually tweeted himself on Fox Biz. Let's take a listen into this. Uh, Nick, Nick T is great. Uh, let's see here. Stand by one second while I get it ready. It is. All right, Nick T, the Fed's mouthpiece, retweeted a video of himself on Fox Business. January jobs report is not at all consistent with a slowing economy. Uh, this guy is basically deemed uh, a, someone who works for the Fed. He doesn't. He works for the Wall Street Journal. But people say he works for the Fed because he seems to get all the text messages from the Fed that kind of massages the market the way the Fed wants to move. So uh, let's listen in to see what he has to say and what his warning is for us. Here we go. Oh, pinwheel. Yes. All right, Fox. Oh, great. 15-second ad. Unbelievable. Oh, man. <laughs> ay, ay, ay. No problem. We'll get through it. Here we go. Right, there are surprises, and then there are huge surprises, and then there's the jobless report that came out today that shows the nation's unemployment rate is now back to what it was when Richard Nixon had just become president in 1969. The job gains themselves blew past even the most bullish of expectations. 517,000 of them generated last month. Let's go uh, to Nick Timuros, the Wall Street Journal chief economics correspondent who's been crunching the numbers and the impact of all of this. So, Nick, I got to ask you, since you're so well-connected to the financial <laughs> and economic players in our country, you're uh -huh. on, on the Federal Reserve. You see a report like this. Um, what do you do? Yeah, well, Neil, it was a great report. And the question, I think, here is, is this a case of good news is good news or a case of good news is bad news? So if you're at the Fed and you were worried that maybe you had done too much, uh, and that we were going to slow down the economy too much, 
then, you know, this is a good report. But I think the concern here at the Fed would be that you've been expecting to see the economy slow down because you want to slow down demand to make sure you've done enough to keep inflation coming back down. And this report is not at all consistent with an economy that's slowing down. And so I think that's where the, the heartburn could be. Look, it's one report. We'll get another report in a month. The Fed will have another meeting a couple of weeks after that. Uh, so, you know, they, they don't have to make up their mind right now on what this means. But I think it could be unsettling if you were expecting to see more of a slowdown and you're not getting one. I wonder how much attention then Jerome Powell and the others will pay to the market reaction to this, that it is a Goldilocks-type report. It shows that we might be achieving the soft landing. We've got some wage constraints there. Um, so it's the best of all worlds. Now, I know sometimes Jerome Powell likes to come out and say, don't get ahead of your skis here. How do you think he, he thinks about the market response, albeit early, we have a few hours to go, Nick, but what do you think? Well, the interesting thing about the market's response has been, you know, we've had this rally over the last month where investors have been expecting inflation to come down faster, maybe because we have a recession. And so they've been expecting the Fed to cut rates later this year. And so that's been behind this rally. That should reverse if you now think that the economy's not slowing down, that it might take longer to get inflation down, and that we're not going to have a recession. So the Fed, you know, the Fed chair on Wednesday said, we have a different outlook from the market, and he wasn't going to try to push back against that outlook. And so he pretty much blessed the easier financial conditions that we've seen. But what you would want to see here, I mean, it should work both ways. If you now think that actually the Fed isn't going to cut rates later this year and might have to take rates higher than you thought because the economy's doing better, then you shouldn't rally just on whatever news, you know, comes out. Good news, then you go up. Bad news, then you go up. And so I think that's where you could see some issues here. Got it. Nick, always great catching up with you. Nick Demers on that report. Ah, that was not that insightful. That, I mean, that was all, I hate to say it, but that was kind of a duh. Like, I, I don't know, that wasn't that insightful. It's basically, it's sort of like, let's just see what the other reports show. We kind of have already been expecting that. Uh, yeah, sure. Look, you've got another uh, jobs report before the March 22nd meeting. Uh, we know we've got ECI coming in low. We know we got jolts coming in high. Uh, is this because of a seasonal adjustment? Is the economy really still hot? Who knows? I certainly don't know. But uh, I, I, I think that uh, we'll be... Um, uh, let's, let's put it... I, uh, what, what do I think? <laughs> how, how do I sum up what I think? I think, to sum up what I think, uh, is, look, so far, news has been good. Okay? News has been good. And, and the leading indicators are good as well. I say it like a broken record... Uh, the jobs indicators we're getting from Chipotle, from Starbucks, are great news. ECI coming in lower than expected, great news. Yeah, there are more job openings. Yeah, more people are going to work. Yes, there could be some crazy seasonal adjustments that are skewing this to make the report look even juicier than it actually is. Who knows? We'll get some more data, uh, but uh, this is, in my opinion, the kind of place where Unless we think we're walking into a double-dip inflation crisis, which is possible, it's what Michael Burry thinks and others think as well, then uh, maybe it makes sense to ride the Nike swoosh. We'll see. But what I do know with certainty is I've got to go to the course member live stream right after I make another cup of coffee. So 
Cheers to those of you who are here. If you're a course member, head on over. We have a lot of work to do today. We are going to be doing peg ratio work. We're going to be going into the uh, Amex fundamentals and evolution. Uh, yeah, a lot of people have been asking for evolution, so we'll be doing that as well. See you there shortly. Thank you so much for watching or listening, and we'll see you in the next one. Goodbye.